2: The ladies had a nice Mother's Day. Thank you for joining us for another nightlight adventure. Um, I'm so thrilled to have Mark Olshaker returning tonight. And he and John Douglas have another captivating book entitled When a Killer Calls. Mark was a guest a few months ago to review their The Killer's Shadow We'll uh, be weaving other profile stories from several other of their books into tonight's discussion. Uh, Mark was involved with the Mindhunter show on Netflix, and he is also a Rod Serling protege. Hi, Mark. Welcome back to Nightlight. How are you?
3: Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me back.
2: Yeah. Uh, Uh, A small section of my library uh, keeps expanding with uh, your your works. Uh, Well, that's encouraging. (laughs) Yeah, uh, well, uh, I think you and John have some uh, – something uh, just really – I don't know what you call it – Interesting going on. Well, you've had what ten books or so you've co-authored or more?
3: Yeah, something like that. And you know, I I guess if if I can anticipate your uh, your question, Mark, um, I think the reason that uh, we keep going, or we have kept going, and the reason that People do seem to be interested in in the true crime genre and I'm often asked about why and uh, I think the reason is because people want to like me personally I think people want to understand why people do the things they do I mean true crime when you think about it it's the human condition writ large at the at the extremes I mean we all Mm -hmm. we all feel Basic emotions: love, hate, jealousy, revenge, resentment. I mean, you name it. I'm sure you can come up with a lot more Uh than I've just said. But uh, this is this is about people who aren't limited by the kind of uh, impulse control or behavior control, or you know, for want of a better word moral universe that uh, that mo- that most of us are. Uh, they don't have any compassion uh, or empathy for other people. And so this is the extreme. And I think both of these books that you've mentioned, uh, both The Killer's Shadow, our previous book, and this current one, uh, When a Killer Calls, really are about extremes of human behavior. On one side you've got some very vicious criminals uh, with no compassion whatsoever, and on the other side you've got some very heroic victims, uh, really courageous, and some uh, and some very dedicated uh, law enforcement officers, uh, attorneys, uh, investigators, profilers, you know, all trying to do the right thing. So I think that's the reason why um, people continue to be interested. At least, uh, at least I think so.
2: Yeah, and uh, yeah, I've, there's some other um, of those emotions that you know we could talk about uh, towards the end of the show that, that I want to bring up and and. And things uh, with a, a positive uh, notes, but you know, we could just look at what's gone on over the last week with the you know that prison romance and escape
0: story,
2: yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's that, pretty
3: wild, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean that. Uh, it's just a perfect lead-in for tonight's show And, and you know, like with all these uh, You know, books and notes <clears throat> I have all over my desk You know, I was thinking uh, Okay How much of this prison romance Is all about fantasy and control And who's on what side of the bars And this isn't going to end well <laughs> And I, 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 have you and John written a book that, that touches on a subject like that?
3: Well, indirectly, yes. And you're absolutely right that no matter, let's say we were having this show a couple of days ago before the end of this, we could have predicted that this wasn't going to end well. I mean, there was no way it could it could end well, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, this certainly is about control. It's about manipulation. It's about domination to a certain extent. Um, there's a lot we don't know yet about the relationship between these two people who coincidentally were both, uh, had the surname White, even though I understand they they weren't related. But you know what I I kind of relate this to, um, and I'm sure you've uh, You've read about this. We've certainly written about it, about uh, women who uh, who fall in love with, uh, with killers in prison, particularly serial killers, I mean, particularly attractive ones like Ted Bundy or notorious ones mm-hmm. like Charlie Manson. And I wonder if there wasn't something like that going on here. Um, the thing that's oh. very bizarre is that this this woman was very close to uh, retirement, as I understand it. Uh, she sold her house uh, and went off with this guy. So, yeah, I think the, the key word that you mentioned uh, uh, in leading into this is fantasy. I think that whatever problems uh, this woman had in her life, and obviously I don't know what they are because – You know, I don't know much about her and I don't think any of us do, but whatever issues, problems, inadequacies she felt in her life, she felt that this – she clearly felt that this relationship was going to take care of them. Now, how do you – you know, but that's as far as it goes, because how do you break out of uh, somebody out of prison, particularly uh, a, a murderer and somebody who's awaiting wait, trial for another murder, I understand, and uh, and, ex- and expect that no one's going to come looking for you or that uh, you're going to be able to hide and evade the authorities. So, you know, it's one of those things like um, actually what I uh, – What I kind of liken it to, in a way, is going back to John Hinckley and the attempted uh, assassination of Ronald Reagan. Uh, He thought in his misguided way that he was going to impress this young actress, Jodie Foster. He was, uh, as I remember the story he was going to to demand uh, that she be brought to him, that an airplane was brought to him, and that they could take off. But then you have to think, then what? I mean, what did he think was going to happen at the end of that plane flight? I mean, so I think to to a certain extent, this is, um, yeah, there's a lot of fantasy involved, but there's, you know, along with that, there's a lot of disordered thinking because, um, as you said yourself, uh, very difficult to conceive how this could end well under any circumstances.
2: Yeah, and you know, give me a little rundown on the show from you know, the last show uh, from uh, the, the the previous Sunday and Roger was talking a little bit about uh, Leon Chulgosh uh, almost got into this uh, like had had these uh, uh, a passion for Emma Goldman who was doing the mm-hmm. indoctrination uh, of you know, union uh, rights and all mm-hmm all these turn the century uh topics and uh, you know, we can get get into this uh yeah, Mark remind me when when was
3: the uh, uh Garfield assassination
2: uh, or was, was this McKinley, McKinley is uh, McKinley, this is McKinley in 19- okay in uh, 1901 so okay, it it, it was it. Uh, it, you know it was almost the same thing and, and he did uh, uh Roger did say uh it, that that it was almost like uh, the Hinckley and Jody Foster scenario interesting yeah i, I, I you know I'm starting to send you that archive too, but it it is really what you just mentioned, and you know from forty the assassination attempt forty years ago and hundred and twenty years ago, you have almost the same same type of thing, and it, you know that's one of the neat things about reading what you and John put together in these books is uh, uh, what seems really unusual is understandable once you two write about it.
3: Well, thank you. Um, And I think you know, when we're talking about the assassin personality, um, the first thing we think of, of course, is somebody who's very mission-driven. Uh, he, well, it's almost always a he, although we've had a few women who attempted um, uh, Sarah Jane Moore and Squeaky Fromm both tried to assassinate President Ford, fortunately, mm-hmm. unsuccessfully. They were both, as I recall, both uh, Manson followers. But you you've got somebody who Seems to be mission oriented, but if once you start looking into their backgrounds, you find um, somebody who's deeply inadequate, somebody who's looking for meaning, somebody who may have been abused in their background, uh, and they are, uh, and sometimes it doesn't even matter to them who they uh, assassinate. They just want that glory or that sense of control. Um, uh, The the attempted assassin of of George Wallace in uh, 1972, Arthur Bremer, uh, at first uh, was stalking President Nixon, and uh, he thought that was going to be his great glory. But he He couldn't get close because of the protection around the president he couldn't get close enough to him, so he chose Wallace not because he particularly agreed or disagreed with wallace's uh uh with, with wallace's program i mean I obviously disagreed with it a lot, but that wasn't the issue. The issue was he was accessible um and you know you find this uh over and over again i mean even if you look at somebody like john Wilkes booth, yes he was uh He was uh, uh, certainly mission-oriented in trying to and succeeding in assassinating uh, President Lincoln. Uh, He was also the only Southern sympathizer in his family, Uh, so he was sort of the odd person out. He was in the shadow of his actor brother uh, Edwin Booth and his uh, father uh, Junius Brutus Booth, Um, and he thought that by... uh, that by assassinating President Lincoln, he would be a great hero. Uh, so, you've—I I can't think of a single assassin-type personality, um, and this even goes as far as assassins of celebrities, like Mark David Chapman, who killed uh, uh, who killed John Lennon. These are deeply deeply flawed, inadequate individuals, as was Joseph Paul Franklin, uh, the assassin that we wrote about in, uh, the, uh, Killer's in the Killer's Shadow, um, who went on a three-year rampage uh, killing uh, uh, Black people, uh, mixed race couples, and uh, Jews, because uh, he uh, he he was mission oriented, and he thought he would start a race war, and then it and that sounds all very mission oriented. He had been a member of the Ku Klux Klan. He had been a member of the National States Rights Party. He had been a member of the National Socialist White People's Party, which was the uh, which was the successor to the American Nazi Party, um, and. Uh, yet when you uh, look and look at his background i mean this is a deeply inadequate guy who uh was good at two things he was good at killing and he was good at bank robberies and he wasn't and and he could have made a very good living as a bank robber for a long time if he didn't have this other idea that he had to kill people and start a race war he was a very good bank robber as it turns out but he didn't care about the money the uh <laughs> unlike most uh, bank robbers he just did it to support his main uh, uh object in life which was uh to kill black people and jews
2: okay and you do mention that franklin uh had- written a threatening letter to uh pres- uh, you know the future president uh carter
3: right exactly um so I mean, so part of the part of the story of, of this book, which uh, which takes place beginning in 1980, is um, this guy Franklin is on the loose. They've identified him uh, at, because of uh, a, a kind of a fluke, but he's escaped from custody. Nobody knows where he is, um, but they know that he is a out-and-out racist. They know he's a really good sniper. That he uh, that he can kill people uh, uh, with a with a uh, rifle from far a uh, scope a uh, scope mounted rifle uh, from far away, and this is 1980, and President uh, Carter is running uh, is running the campaign uh, to be re-elected president, and uh, he's going down south uh, to Atlanta and other places like that, and the FBI and the Secret Service are scared out of their minds that uh, this guy may be uh, stalking the president now. And that's when they called in John Douglas, my writing partner, who was uh, uh really knew in profiling at that point and said can you do a fugitive assessment on this guy and help us find him and um that's what the first half of the book is about mm-hmm.
0: okay
2: so well, you know we just looked at the underbelly of you know, the 70s with squeaky from and you know, uh, tr- trying to shoot uh uh, President Ford, you know, getting into
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, President Carter, and then pre- President uh, or, uh, President Reagan, yeah. and it, we have uh, w- w- was it the gr- the Green River Killer uh, going on at about the same time as the Atlanta child murder and. The, the Sherry Smith's case, which is the subject. Yeah, there's a, lot,
3: there's, there's a lot of bad stuff going on. And, you know, this was also, you know, if you go back a few years, 1977 was uh, the year of uh, uh, the Son of Sam. It was the year of all the uh, fires in the South Bronx, kind of lawlessness in New York City. Um, and, you know, People, uh, people my age at least, and I don't want to date myself too much, but people my age think of the 1960s as the great age of revolt. But they forget that in the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, a lot of bad stuff was going on. There were a lot of riots. Uh, there were there were bombings of all sorts. There were uh, radical oriented bank robberies. Uh, so yeah, there was there was a lot of a lot of bad stuff going on at, at that point and. Uh, so you're absolutely right. So, so well, let's set
2: the stage with uh, Sher- Sherry Smith's case, and in 1985. So it's a little bit after. Uh, you know, this you know really nasty late
3: seventies early eighties stuff. So yeah, uh, you know, uh, let's, yeah. This so, is so, exactly the opposite in in a way. Uh, you've got a small town, uh, uh, Lexing- Lexington, uh, South Carolina, a very uh, kind of a peaceful place, friendly place, kind of rural, uh, and one day in the spring of nineteen eighty five. Sherry Smith, a uh, blonde beautiful uh 17-year-old Is about to graduate from high school and she comes home after going to uh, uh, a swim party after meeting her mother at the post office to get uh, uh, money orders uh, and and buy some clothing uh, because she's going on the senior trip to the Bahamas in a few days and this is a Friday and on Sunday she is uh, supposed to say she's a uh, she 's a near professional singer that 's what she hopes to be she 's going to sing the national anthem at the uh, at the gra- at the high school graduation and she stops on her way home. Uh, she lives way down a long uh, gravel driveway her house is uh, oh several hundred yards from the road because her parents have a big plot of land. She stops at the mailbox um, to pick up the mail and That's it. She's not, she's not seen again alive. And, uh, her parents are home. They, uh, they notice her car at the top of the hill and in a couple of minutes they realize, well, wait a minute, why isn't Sherry coming home? So her, her dad, Robert drives his car up to the, uh, up to the street, finds Sherry's car is running. The door is open. Her purse is still on the seat. Uh, there are footprints. Uh, she, uh, she had not put her shoes back on since she'd been at the swim uh, party there are footprints in the dirt to the mailbox and no fit footprints back uh, he immediately calls the uh, the, uh, the sheriff's department they come over um, and we've got a missing case which leads to the largest manhunt in South Carolina history um, now the really horrible part about this story is the person who apparently abducted her Uh, in a few days, starts calling the family. That's the, hence the title of our book, When a Killer Calls. He starts calling the family and describing himself as a friend of Sherry's, but also that he's got her and that she's alive and uh, what he's going, uh, and he's going to let her go, but maybe he'll kill himself and just absolutely torturing the family. And then uh, uh, the, the FBI is called in, which is how John Douglas gets involved. They begin, uh, uh, because the uh uh Columbia South Carolina FBI uh, local uh, FBI field office calls them in and they start uh trying to figure this guy out and profile him and uh uh in a few days he says uh you're going to get a letter from Sherry uh from Sherry and uh that'll tell you everything um on that the mon- the monday uh, following the graduation they do get this letter and it's called last will and testament it's written on lined paper obviously from a legal pad of some sort and sherry at this point knows that this man is going to kill her and she tells uh, her parents that uh, and her sister and her boyfriend not to uh, not to Grieve about her that she knows she's going to heaven, and this, that, and the other. Uh, It's probably the most searing document of its kind I've ever seen. Uh, It's certainly an incredible testament to grace, courage. Uh, I don't know what else to call it that this this girl, not quite 18, knew she was going to be killed almost immediately and yet she had the the grace if you will to write out this this document uh uh and interestingly enough if we get ahead of ourselves in the story this document helps lead ultimately to the killer along with uh-huh. uh, behavioral profiling and some really good detective work um but uh uh it's it's just an absolutely searing story completely tragic but at the same time a story of uh, absolute depravity and evil on the part of a uh killer who wants to become a serial killer and a uh and a victim and a victim's family who show just incredible grace faith and courage and uh, so it's it's both a tragic story and an incredibly inspiring story at the same time, and I guess to go back to our, your original point, that's one of the reasons people read true crime be, to get to get these extremes of uh, to understand and comprehend and empathize, if you will, with these extremes of of human behavior and the human condition. Okay, and well, uh, uh,
2: uh, do you mind if I read uh, a paragraph?
3: Please, whatever Where, you like.
2: Uh, yeah. Okay, well you and John wrote um, I mean if you tell me where it is I'll read I'll, I'll I'll read it if you like, but it's up to you. Oh, it's on it's on page 43. Uh, it's, uh 43.
3: Uh, All right, let's see.
2: It's okay. right after Sherry's letter and it starts off <laughs> while Striving.
3: Okay. All right. How, how far do you how far do you want me to go, Mark?
2: To the end of the paragraph uh, to un- uh, unbearable
3: okay Um let's see okay while striving to be empathic those of us in law enforcement try to maintain our objectivity and a reasonable detachment but that just isn't possible when you have to try to feel what the victim was feeling putting myself in Sherry Smith's head at the time she was writing this was almost unbearable
2: yes yeah, just, you know, just, uh, you know jo- John had a real difficult time. with
3: Yeah, and, and I think you bring up an interesting point here, Mark, which is that uh, when you're trying to solve crime, when you're a detective or an investigator of any kind, uh, you really do try to um, be objective. You have to try to separate yourself out. But with what a profiler does, with what somebody like John and his team uh, have to do, you not only have to put yourself in the head of the uh, of the offender, you have to put yourself in the head of the victim too to understand what the victim was going through, how the victim might have reacted, how the uh, how the uh, offender might have reacted to the victim's reaction, and so that takes a tremendous emotional toll. There's there's no way around it. I mean, John tells me frequently that. You know, he'll be walking in the woods or something. He used to be with his kids when they were younger, and he'd see a stream or whatever, and he'd say, oh, that reminds me of the place where we found the body of such and such. So, you know, there are all these triggers, and in this kind of work, you really do have to get yourself involved with, uh, uh, with the emotional side of it, and I think that takes its toll. And in this case, it was even... I think it was even uh, more strenuous uh, emotionally because once John started listening to the transcripts and recordings of uh, these calls that this sadistic um, narcissistic killer was making to the Smith family, uh, he realized that um, not only was uh, the killer, the unsub, the unknown subject as we call him uh, obsessed with the, uh, sherry smith uh he was also became obsessed with her look-alike older sister dawn they looked very much alike they used to sing together they were known as the uh singing smith sisters and uh john when he actually went down to uh lexington to try to uh help out and work the case he realized that um he could actually use dawn as bait bring the killer out now this is extremely dangerous also extremely emotionally harrowing and um i you know i just have endless admiration for dawn's courage and the courage of of her parents um that they would uh that they would go along with this with the idea of trying to uh flush out uh uh, sherry 's killer, and I also might add that exactly two weeks after sherry was killed, even though uh, even though uh, and the and the killer, by the way, in one of his phone calls uh, told Don where to find the body, which was uh, he waited long enough for the body to be decomposed and in the woods in uh, in the intense South Carolina heat of uh, of that month. And uh, he kept saying, well, things got out of hand. He didn't really want to do it. Uh, um, He was going to kill himself and all of that, which we knew was absolute nonsense. Two weeks to the day after he uh, abducted Sherry, uh, 17-year-old Sherry, he abducted nine-year-old, also blonde, Deborah May Helmick from the trailer uh, park where she and her family lived. Uh, We don't even know how she died, but uh, he then led... uh, through another phone call, he led Dawn uh, and the police to uh, her body. So, I mean, this was a, an incredibly vicious guy who clearly was going to continue his murderous spree until he was caught. I mean, so the clock the clock was ticking every minute.
2: Okay. Um, what's... Well, go go into some of these uh phone calls uh, it, you know some of the first ones he's using a a, a pitch modulator to distort yep. his voice
3: yeah so, so the point is this guy was pretty sophisticated. I mean, he was totally narcissistic. He was, uh, totally thinking about himself, but he was pretty sophisticated in that he used, uh, what the, what the, uh, FBI lab called, uh, or the engineering department called a pitch modulator to change the pitch and cadence of his voice. Remember, this was before the, um, the days of cell phones, of course, and cell phone towers, 1985, um, so uh and he would call from uh he would call from random uh telephone booths in the area and know that he could stay on just long uh, he he knew he he knew that the the police obviously went after the first call would have a trap and trace on uh on the smiths line and he always knew to stay on just long enough so that um so that he could get off before the trap and trace could work and the police could, uh, or the sheriff's department actually, Lexington Sheriff's Department, could get to the scene. So there were a number of cases where uh, the sheriff's uh, deputies and investigators got to uh, where the the call had taken place literally minutes after the uh, unknown subject had left. Okay. So this was a pretty it, this was a pretty sophisticated guy. Now listening to these uh, listening to these transcripts uh, uh, to these phone calls and reading the transcripts, John could also figure out that he was pretty obsessive. Uh, his directions to. Uh, uh, to where to find the two bodies, were, were very meticulous. Uh, if he was interrupted in the middle, he would have to start again. So you knew that this was a pretty obsessive, compulsive guy. And the more that they uh, could listen, the more they would they would learn about him. And uh, at a certain point, uh, John said, "Down there," he said, "Well, maybe we can draw him out by having a." Um, memorial service at uh at sherry's grave and uh and uh have dawn be the center of it and you know we'll we'll survey the crowd now it just so happens uh to get ahead of the story again when they um, um when they did eventually find the guy he had been at the memorial service but uh-huh. the grave was so close to the uh to the road that he was able to stay in his car and elude the police
2: okay uh, uh, let's talk about the uh, you know the during the phone calls mm-hmm. um uh try to find uh which one he he was talking started off talking with mrs. Smith and then Correct. dawn uh started taking over the calls what she she's like twenty one or something like that
3: yeah she was it, in she was in college at the time and uh and clearly he was uh, uh and and clearly he uh the unsub became obsessed with dawn and uh and started uh well, really trying to create a relationship with her, and and yet the most chilling line of all of the calls is at a certain point he says to her something to the effect of, you know, Don, you can't be protected twenty four hours a day. Um, God wants you to join Sherry Fay. Uh, F- Sherry Fay was her middle name. They didn't use it, but the the, the killer did, and um, so. When he said, God wants you to join Sherry Faye, both uh, the FBI and the Lexington County Sheriff's Department knew that she was in danger, and she had to be watched all the time.
2: Yeah, and he, he, he uh, substituted her name. He, he screwed up on one call where he substituted yes, he her name mm-hmm. for, for Sherry's, and right. John uh, – you and John kind of you know, go into that where, yeah, you know, she seems like she's going to be. Maybe she was an original, the original target, or
3: well, you, you, I, it's it's possible. I think. I mean, what we have here again is, and you know, maybe this goes back to our original conversation about um, both the uh, the two whites who we just talked about Mm -hmm. the uh the prison guard and the uh and the killer um he had created this fantasy relationship with both of them um and uh we suspect uh retracing sherry's last day we suspect very strongly that he must have been following her that he that he picked her up uh Visually, at a certain place, probably at the shopping center where she met her mother to go to the post office uh, and the bank um, and he may have even followed her to the uh, uh, to her the swimming party and then and then back again so uh, you know he had somehow become obsessed with her and created this relationship his own mi- in um, his own mind and in some of these horrible calls where he's just totally full of himself no compassion for his victims at all he talks about their relationship and uh, how she willingly had sex with him which was absolutely untrue uh, no question about it and uh, how they talked and uh, how she told him things and so he had this was a guy who was just a total narcissist and uh uh that was clear from from the phone conversations and uh we knew eventually this is um this would be how you would try to uh, get him and once the more you know about this guy the uh you know the easier it is to uh to try to formulate a strategy to uh to catch him
2: okay and you know, to catch him it it was uh uh he he had stopped using the you know voice enhance yeah. uh on the phone call but he was... Yeah, which I
3: think tells us that he's, uh, you know, he's getting, he's gaining, he's, he's gaining more confidence, and at the same time, he's getting a little sloppy because he now believes in his own omnipotence. He believes in his ability to evade law enforcement. Because, remember, I think we talked about this last time I was on Mark uh, with each of these, uh, with with each of these violent predators. Uh, you have a deep-seated sense of uh, inadequacy together with a sense of entitlement and grandiosity and a feeling that the world is not giving you what you deserve. And this is all triangulated with a sense of resentment that you are where you are in your life and not someplace better. And um, and that, that's in makings for a very dangerous uh, individual.
2: Yeah, And with um it, it's stop he 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 stopped using the voice um uh th- uh thing for the uh phone calls and they were eventually you know uh falling off and well and he also had uh you know would be have the situation with Deborah, uh, his next victim, going on Mm -hmm. uh, not long after that. So so he has uh, uh, several things going on, and the case is kind of uh, going cold, and to get – some uh, you know, like the fingerprints uh, on the phones weren't, uh, you know, they were wiped down. There, you know, there was nothing going yeah, up which there, which
3: again speaks speak to his, you know, criminal sophistication. Hmm.
2: So, so, John doesn't have any new information to keep building on. So he he wants to, uh, yeah. There's a uh, scene towards the. Uh, uh end of uh, uh, silence of the lambs where you know Jodie Foster goes into the the uh what was it Frederica's uh bedroom and just kinda l- looks around yeah. all, and, yeah. and, and and that's where she makes the realization uh you know he's making a suit. What right uh and, and uh Sherry had the koala bears can can you explain yeah. what what John and, and yeah the trouble the, the, like the real aggravation uh, or inner tor- ter- turmoil that John was going through to put Dawn through this
3: yeah John go John meets with the parents goes to uh the Smith house and uh he uh and he and his uh fellow agent who he uh, who he Brings with him, uh, they go, they go into Sherry's bedroom, which is just the way it was, and they realize she has a collection of stuffed bears, uh, and he finds one that's small enough—a um, koala bear that it's one of those that you know. I think you 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 press its belly and its arms go up, and it was very small. And he said, "I'm going to take this. I'm going to use it because," and he made it- uh, i think it was a mascot of uh of um, dawn's college if i remember correctly where, where sherry was also planning on going in the fall and uh so he was decided well, will we'll use this in the uh um, in in the memorial uh service that we're going to do and he had and he made a big point of having it attached to a flower left on uh, uh, Sherry's grave and uh, the newspapers and the television stations covered it and uh, what he was hoping is that that the killer would come and take it and, and, and be surveilled. Uh, now, that didn't happen, as I say, because the killer was uh, too afraid to get out of his car. But later on, when he was captured, um, that turned out to be a very significant moment in the interrogation. Yes. Yeah, so, so he, uh, you know, the killer was... I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying... <laughs> I'm trying to this is not funny but I'm 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 trying to sort of tell the story without giving away all of the what happens next so your mm-hmm. uh, so your your listeners and my readers won't be uh, won't be disappointed but uh, you know the main thing is to tell the story truthfully and honestly mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and 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 with the dignity and compassion that it deserves and I hope we've done yeah, that.
2: Yeah, it okay so as the, the uh, staged memorial service mm-hmm. uh, winds down, you know, we get the the uh, kidnapping of uh, Deborah, and, and there was actually a witness for that, and yeah, you know, that's where yeah, you, know, uh, you, you know, you bring in uh, someone saw someone driving uh you know, recklessly right before Sherry would have gotten out of the car to get the mail at the mailbox right.
0: mm-hmm. and,
2: and there there we get uh, okay different uh car and that's one of my, one of my favorite parts of you know your uh books is you know you get all you know, all these uh interesting uh analysis of you know the bad guy uh, but you know, my favorite part is you, you know where you and John write about this,
3: the guy drove a green sedan. Mm-hmm. It's like, how,
0: how do you figure that out?
3: It, it, well you know what 's right. interesting is you, a, a lot of it seems like it 's hocus pocus but it 's not. You start looking at the personality and you say, yeah. "Well, what kind of car would this now you you don 't necessarily know that it 's a green car. What you can figure out from the personality is this going to be a dark colored car is it going to be a light colored car is it going to be a uh is it going to be a new car or an older car? A lot of that is determined by whether you think this is a uh a sophisticated person who's who may have some money or is this an old uh, is this a, a person who is probably just doing odd jobs or is unemployed um, does he have the means to be steadily employed um, and we knew we we figured from uh uh John figured from the uh, meticulousness of the uh, of the instructions that were given, the directions to both bodies, that this would be a very meticulous kind of guy. He'd be very organized, so his car would probably be a somewhat late model. It would be clean. Now, we find out later he's sophisticated enough. He even changes the license plates on the car, so because... Uh, um, when Deborah May is uh, is abducted uh, and she's kicking and screaming and she's thrust into this car, um, one of the witness that you described, he had a partial uh, license. He got a partial license number, so they at mm-hmm. least knew what they were the kind of thing that they were looking for. So all of this adds up, and so this really, as I say, is a case where three important things come together. You have dogged detective work and investigative work by the uh, by the FBI and the Lexington County and the surrounding county sheriff's offices because this actually ends up in three different counties in terms of both the uh, abductions and the uh, body dump sites. You have uh, some really good behavioral profiling and you have some really good scientific analysis. Now, those three things together... Uh, are what leads to the solution of this case it 's almost it 's almost a perfect example of uh, of these kind of elements uh, in in investigation working together and uh, there 's no doubt in my mind that you know in the grim ledger of uh, of murder, this is a success story i mean two girls were killed um, and probably who knows how many lives were saved because of this good detective work? And we also believe that we can't prove. We believe that this killer probably killed three women before. Um, he, we, we don't know that for sure. But uh, um, my guess, based on the evidence, is that he probably killed at least two of them.
0: Okay. Uh, uh, the,
2: um. The, the case with Sherry seems to have really haunted uh, John because you, you uh, is it in Mind Hunter where uh, that that case has a small write-up in it and yes, yes you, you de- uh, okay I. I I forget which book it was in uh uh I thought it might be in, in mentioned in Unabomber as well but uh um okay so it it's also in Mindhunter and it it just seems like this is one of those cases where uh, it, it was
3: very distressing for John yeah yeah and let me let me tell you a story about that mark because it's it's interesting that you bring that up um after um, um after our um previous book um the killer across the table which is about uh interviewing these kind of predators in prison uh we we chose four uh four uh, s- uh serial killers who were uh uh, who who had been convicted and incarcerated who John got to interview in depth to uh to really understand what was going on in their minds and uh the ultimate uh the the ultimate goal of these uh these prison interviews that
1: he and
3: uh uh, Robert Ressler conducted in the uh, 70s and 80s which re- really began the behavioral profiling program at the FBI but the the whole idea was to try to for the first time correlate what was going on in the offenders mind before during and after the offense so that uh, behavioral evidence left at the crime scene would start having some resonance and some meaning so Anyway, that was, that was uh, the killer across the table. Uh, so John and I were in New York uh, to promote that book, and we met with our editor, Matt Harper, and he said, you know, I'd like to, do a, I'd like to begin a series with you guys of individual cases. Uh, books of individual cases uh, everything you 've done up until now has been about themes and larger issues he said but i think uh, I think there 's really a readership for uh, for telling individual stories, and we said, Well, it sounds like an interesting idea um, what did you What did you have in mind matt and he said, Well, you tell me uh, he said uh, he said what um, what 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 cases do you think would be the most interesting and i said well tell me your criteria and he, i said because each case tells us something different and and they all build on each other at least the important ones and he said well i think what i'd like is which cases affected John the most, either in terms of emotionally or things that he learned, things that he was able to use, uh, the import of the case in terms of what it did, what it established, what it stopped. And so we thought for a few moments and we said, well, there's two that uh, that I can think of off the top of my head that really did affect him and uh, for for different reasons um i said one was the joseph paul franklin uh uh murder spree because uh what was important about that one was uh not only did uh uh we uh we capture a vicious and very prolific uh and uh very resourceful uh assassin type killer um but also this is the kind of person who actually influenced other people like him, like Dylan Roof, for instance, uh, who you know, who wanted to start his own race war. Um so that affected him in, in that regard. And then um we said and the Sherry Faye Smith and Deborah May Helmick uh murders in South Carolina because uh it was such a different kind of case and because of Sherry's last will and testament it shows just such courage and grace and faith unbelievable on the part of this 17 year old girl and the contrast with this absolutely vicious killer who you know who's just haunting in his uh let's let's call it what it is evil and uh so we said you know to, to start the series off those are the two cases which probably have the most uh, emotional resonance. So, yeah, I, I I agree with you, Mark. That's uh, these cases did have a profound emotional effect on John, and and that's really why we we chose to write about them.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, it's uh, uh, you, you know you just mentioned theme, and uh, it, her case appears in other of your works, and, it, and it's not until you do uh, you know, when a killer calls that yeah you fully explore it but it,
3: it's uh, yeah, and we also really well you know but and this remove we also wanted to talk to Dawn at this point and get her perspective uh from what she was doing and uh you know talk to um uh, to other people uh talked a long time to Ron Walker, who was the uh FBI agent who uh, uh who Uh, who accompanied John down there and and helped out with the case. He was also involved with the interrogation of the uh, suspect once he was caught and uh, so we really wanted to take a deep dive into this case and really show what this kind of investigation is all about and kind of give an almost you know rather than just an overview as we've done in some of the others in terms of the principles of profiling we really wanted to sort of get into the uh the, the almost the minute by minute narrative of of what happens next and how how a uh, a, a horrifying but successful investigation is carried out and then um the second part of the book is about the uh the trial and prosecution of uh, of of this vicious killer and how to uh, there was no question uh once he was caught that he was uh that, that he was uh the killer the question was something that's this depraved Could it be considered sane, or was this guy just insane? And um, John and um, the prosecutor, Donnie Myers, uh, really went to extreme uh, measures to uh to prove to the jury that yes this guy may have been mentally ill, he was certainly a wacko, but he knew what he was doing he was he was sane he uh he understood right from wrong, he just didn't care uh his own uh his own goals and his own uh uh his own ego were more important to him
2: yeah well it, and you know when you look at how he was uh adapting the phone to Uh, Cover his voice. Right. And wiping down the uh, phone after he uh, was calling the Smith family. Uh, Mm -hmm. he, He knew what he was doing you bet uh, yeah, he, he kind of really can't feel too sorry for him or, or believe in you know, and he
3: did he did really weird things in in court um at one point yeah. he got up and he he, he said he wanted Don Smith to marry him and all that and you know this is two things first of all he's trying to show i think that he is um Wacko, but uh, also this is just his absolute ego. I mean, he had this is the the trial is almost like the phone calls. He had this. He was the center of everybody's attention, and that was uh, that was very important to him. I mean, this guy was a total narcissist.
2: Okay, and, and yeah, uh, uh, the, you know, since you have done you know the killer shadow. Mm-hmm. and uh when a killer calls, uh did matt talk- talk you into doing a third one
3: We're talking about it now um okay. we have we have one in mind I don't want to say anything about it, but we uh we we have one in mind if we uh if we go forward with this series yeah uh, okay. and, it, okay. and again it's a complete it's a completely different kind of case which uh shows a different kind of killer and uh and a different kind of investigation so um you know i hope i hope you one can learn something new and uh and and hear a different different kind of story with each of our books
2: okay uh, what uh you're you're welcome to come back on and talk- talk about uh the the new one when it comes out
3: yeah all I have to do is write it first <laughs> <laughs> that sometimes takes me well, a while <laughs> okay
2: but it, it, uh, and speaking of other themes um uh, uh-huh. you know, you do have in the Unabomber book as well mm-hmm. as in uh when a killer calls uh the uh, uh johns investigations into signatures versus mo
3: sure thought,
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh,
2: yeah. uh the Can can you explain that? That uh, that
3: yeah, absolutely. Um, The most people know about MO or modus operandi, which is basically the way an offender goes about committing a crime, and that is if the. If the criminal is successful, in other words, if he continues to get away uh, and evade capture, his M.O. is going to evolve. He's going to—he's learning from what he does. Um, a bank robber, you know, might learn uh, that he should cover the. Uh, a surveillance camera or have a getaway car or whatever um, and uh, killers learn the same kind of thing in terms of how to dispose a body so that it doesn't get uh, uh, doesn't get found out but then we have another element Uh, which we call signature. And signature is the emotional component of the crime. It is the essence of why the criminal is doing it. It's closely aligned to motive, but it's not exactly motive because it's what the killer can't get away from. Uh, In other words, uh, the... uh, Let's say uh, we've already we've already talked about uh, uh, Sherry's uh, and Deborah's killers uh, um, M.O., which was he would you know, he learned to use a voice modulator. He would keep his calls short. He would call from uh, he would call from strange locations. He would wipe down. He would wipe down the phone, he changed cars, he changed license plates, all kinds of things like that. That's M.O., uh, modus operandi. Um, What was signature about him was his need to possess these girls, to uh, want to almost mix his soul with theirs, uh, and to be... Uh, considered important and an important part of their lives and to absolutely manipulate, dominate, and control them. That's signature, and that's the kind of thing that doesn't change. That doesn't evolve. Uh, for some people, uh, you you look at some, some of the really vicious criminals like... Uh, Stephen Pinnell, the uh I think he was called the I40 uh, killer in Delaware he would pick up prostitutes uh on the side of the road uh and uh as he was a he was a truck driver and uh he would torture them before he killed them. That was his signature because that's what was important to him. That was the emotional component that gave him a sense of power and control. And in his case, um, the way he dumped the bodies uh, was not really M.O. That was part of his signature too. He left them. He just dumped them on the side of the road in the open just to show his contempt for them. So. You know, each element of something can be both a uh, uh, can be either a signature or an MO. Sometimes both, and it takes a very discerning uh, investigator to know the difference. And I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, okay. uh we, we we cite uh, two bank robberies in two different places. Now they seem, on their surface, to be uh, absolutely similar cases. The uh, the bank robber made the uh made the uh pers- the bank personnel and the t- uh, and the customers strip naked now you think well that's pretty weird um and yet when they're both caught and yet in one case he took picture the the offender took pictures of them in another he didn't now what's the difference between these two um in the one, who t- the one who took pictures, that sense of control, that sense of domination, that sense of humiliation and controlling all of these people and making them do something totally humiliating, totally embarrassing, that was what was important to him. The bank robbery was nice, and he got money out of it, but controlling these uh, people uh, and humiliating them, humiliating these decent, ordinary uh, citizens was what was what he got off on that was signature Now you look at the other case uh, which takes place that one was in Texas by the way this one takes the other one takes place in in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, if I remember correctly, and what he was doing by making the uh, patrons take their clothes off and making the staff take their clothes off is they're so embarrassed. They're looking down at the ground. They don't. They can't identify him. When the police come oh. and uh, when the police come and uh, ask for a description, they can't give one. So in, that, in his, this case, that's M.O., because he had learned that if he forced them to do something embarrassing and humiliating, uh, they wouldn't want to look up, they wouldn't want to look at him, they wouldn't want to look at each other, and uh, that foiled uh, identification. So you've got, again, a, a similar technique, but it's interpreted in an entirely different way.
2: Oh, okay that just uh sounds very effective
3: yeah unfortunately it was okay and,
2: okay and okay since we're um looking at you know the modus operandi and signatures um
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, when you look at several of your works you mm-hmm. get uh, say with uh, you know, the Jack the Ripper case that you get into uh-huh. a little bit in uh, Mind Hunter. Um, yeah,
3: and and we or, actually we we do we do a long take on um, Jack the Ripper in the cases that haunt us, uh, which mm-hmm. is the first case we we talk about in the cases that haunt us too.
2: Okay, so so uh, you, you know with. Oh, uh, it w- w- was Mary Chapman the last one.
3: Uh, Mary, yeah, Mary Kelly, I think, if I remember correctly. Uh, uh, You're talking okay. about Jack the Ripper. Yes. Yeah, I think it's it, Mary Kelly, but uh, 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 we'd have to okay, look that uh, up.
2: Yeah, I, 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 I just um, forgot off the top of my head, but um, yeah. but yeah, that was you know really. Uh, it, it, you know, he he spent time
3: oh yeah with
2: yeah. her okay and it was and it was the
3: and it was the first of the cases that was actually done indoors too uh
2: yeah that, uh, that's the that, that's the one i am talking about so yeah it it, yeah. it and w- w- with the cases in um when a killer calls it, there there's a closeness to the victim yeah In uh, say the killer's shadow, um, the
3: exact opposite. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah, Franklin is shooting. uh, You start off with him shooting up a synagogue from several blocks away, and then in in your Unabomber book, uh, you know the packages. uh, Ted, Ted Kaczynski is mailing the packages hundreds of miles away uh right I, so, sometimes he's mailing them to the wrong address mm-hmm. people are are uh, unknowingly forwarding since, since the intended target no longer works at that university they're they're forwarding it to where the uh, guy works and uh, they don't know what they're doing and it, it, yeah so 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 there the package is making trips uh, an extra couple hundred miles longer th- than the original uh you, you know uh, mailing route but there's this uh difference uh, it, it, what I, th- I think's really interesting is all these different uh, proximities very close yeah. or uh very long distance oh, oh, uh, right. what what did John or, or, or you and John uh you learn
3: about uh, distance killings well it shows it it really it shows the kind of personality we're talking about now uh in when a killer calls these call these uh uh murders are up close and personal, they're uh, very close confines. Uh, the killer obviously spends time with the victims ahead of time. In um, in uh, the Unabomber's case, he may or may not even know the person. He uh, he doesn't really uh, he, he, he he doesn't really personalize them. He impersonalizes them. He's cowardly in the sense that he does not confront his victims Uh, and you've got something very similar with Timothy McVeigh when he blows up the uh, Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City I mean he he even kills children he doesn't know who he's gonna kill it's just in it's just an act of uh, of whatever you want to call it uh, resentment hatred anti-government feeling but again Personal inadequacy, and he has completely depersonalized his victims. So this is a this is a different kind of person. Now, um, and it just it with Joseph Paul Franklin. One of the reasons he 's so scary is you 've got all of these mixed together he 's a sniper he's he 's very good with the sniper rifle he can shoot from as you say from hundreds of yards away. He also kills uh, several people in a parking lot close up when he sees uh when when he sees um a mixed race couple he doesn 't like uh, he uh, He also picks up hitchhikers from time to time and uh and he profiles them uh, he decides whether if if he finds out that they've these white girls who he thinks need to be protected, but if they have uh, had any kind of uh, relationship with a black man, then he decides well, they need to be punished so he he kills them and he kills them close up he's also he also bombs a couple of places, so this guy is mission oriented in the sense that you know, he always kills the kind of person he wants. He doesn't know them in most cases. Uh, in a few cases, that he tries to kill people, like uh, Larry Flint, the. Um the publisher of Hustler magazine, pornographic magazine, uh, who he tries to kill, he doesn't, but he uh, he wounds him to the point that he is a paraplegic for the and in pain for the rest of his life. He tries to kill civil rights leader and uh, lawyer Vernon Jordan again, almost kills him. Jordan's in the hospital for months afterwards, but but he lives. Um, but in most cases. Uh, uh Franklin doesn't even know the people that he is uh th- that he is trying to uh th- that he is trying to kill it's just it's all symbolic to him so you've really got different kinds of uh uh killers and an assassin like Mark David Chapman who kills John Lennon um he feels so inadequate that if he can combine himself with Lennon and uh if he, if Lenin is this powerful, and he has the power to end his life, that makes him powerful too. Uh, so, each of these shows a, a different kind of personality, and in terms of what you call, you know, the remote or distant nature of it, a lot of it has to do with what kind of uh skills these people happen to have. If uh, somebody is good with a uh, with a gun, as Franklin was, um he he uses it as a sniper. Um Ted Kaczynski probably the smartest of all these guys. He's um, so smart he can make bombs, and he makes bombs even more intricate than he has to. That's signature, not a modus operandi, because he takes pride in in these bombs that he's making, and he's doing it from uh, he's doing it from a distance. Whereas you've got Timothy McVeigh, he takes a paddle truck and fills it full of fertilizer, which is the fuel that he uses. Um, uh, you know basically a truck full of manure and that's how he blows up the uh, the federal building in Oklahoma City so a lot of it has to do with the individual uh, talents or skills that each of these people have uh, so the distinction to me is not so much the weapon that they use it's what you said originally it's is it up close and personal is it middle distance is it far away where you may not even know uh, the personalities or the individuality of of your victims Um, you know what what is it what is that tells you a lot about the uh, the kind of uh, killer or uh, offender you're talking about so yeah I think when you mention uh, the distance involved between the subject and the uh, offender I think you're really on to something
2: you know, and you know you while you were talking about um, some of the you know different uh personality traits uh, you know, a lot most of these guys are uh very inadequate but right. you know, they kind of compensate with the uh you know big ego but,
3: yeah, compen- in fact, Mark, compensation is a very good word to describe them. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. A lot of a lot of these people really are compensating or trying to compensate in their own mind for their own inadequacies.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, you write in your Unabomber, uh in this communication, they almost always use the plural "we" or "our." To imply that they are part of a larger group or organization
3: right, it, right. yeah it, it, in fact you even a- you even see that in the uh in the john Benet Ramsey ransom note um- cl- clearly this is one person we're talking about whoever uh whoever the killer ultimately turns out to be, but it starts, you know, we are a small foreign faction and all that. Um, yeah, it, uh, the, the the plural uh, gives the offender more of a sense of strength and belonging and, mm-hmm. and forcefulness. Uh, the exception to this is uh, Joseph Paul Franklin, uh, the focus of The Killer's Shadow. He belongs to all of these organizations like the American Nazi Party, the National States Rights Party, the Ku Klux Klan, and he leaves them all. I mean, first of all, he's paranoid, which is understandable. I mean, all of these groups were, at the time, in the uh, 1970s and 80s, were infiltrated by the FBI and, and, and local law enforcement agencies. But what he really doesn't like, the reason he leaves is these people are all talk. They talk about the black problem and the Jewish problem and how the Jews are running the media all over the world and they're international bankers and they're using the black race as dupes and all of that you know horrible stuff um, and yet they all talk about it. They drink and they talk about it and they pass out their pamphlets but they don't do anything and Franklin Uh, says, well, you know, this is not accomplishing anything, and these people are all talk, and I'm moving beyond that. So he goes out on his own. He becomes a lone wolf, as we call them. And these are in some ways the most dangerous people of all, because they're not part of an organization. They're hard to predict. They work on their own, and the thing about Franklin was he was very mobile. I mean, he moved all over the country. He had disguises. He had different license plates. He had all kinds of uh, Uh, fake IDs and he was very mobile and he had cash because he was good at uh, robbing banks and so one of the uh, one of the things that John had to try to do and fortunately he did successfully was when they got when he was assigned to do this fugitive assessment by the FBI's civil rights division he said, all right, this guy's going to go back to where he uh, feels most comfortable. And uh, they knew enough about his background and had interviewed a couple of members of his family that they could predict what he was going to do and where he was going to be. And they knew, and John knew, that knowing that, that people were after him, he couldn't take a chance on robbing a bank because uh, that would, there was just too much chance of being uh, caught um, but the one thing they also knew about him was that when he got desperate, he would go to blood banks and sell his blood. So they, um, they targeted a number of blood banks in the south near where, they, where his home had been in Alabama and uh, along the uh, Florida panhandle and start and, and circulated his picture. Uh, and, and when he went, actually then, as predicted, he went into one of these blood banks, and that's how they caught him.
2: Okay and I have um, one one of the listeners chimed in with uh this is a fascinating show so oh
3: thank you listener whoever you are <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> it, um but it, also what I find interesting uh, you know about
0: the
2: uh, diversity of your books is they're, they're the I, I i don't know what the you know John's official uh, term is I just call it like post-mortem communications but yeah you, know, you get those letters from Jack the Ripper and the message on the uh, a uh, wall is something like the the Jews are not to be blamed for nothing. Yes. I, I don't. Yeah, that and then the letters to the yeah what uh, London Times or whatever's uh, yeah it, you know, the the calls to the Smith House. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the the Unabomber manifesto. Uh, I think uh, I think the son of Sam had some. You bet. Uh, You're right.
3: He wrote to a number of people, including um, the, uh, Joseph Borelli, the, uh, the detective who was, uh, who was the lead detective on the case, who, who by the way, uh, I interviewed later on. Um, he eventually became the chief of detectives for the NYPD but you're right he uh all these guys um and uh same with uh same with Dennis Rader, the uh, BTK strangler uh a lot of them uh a lot of them do uh communicate with either the press or the uh uh or or the police in in some way and you know they they obviously don't want to be caught but they also want the recognition i mean both the BTK strangler and the son of sam they in in these communications you're talking about they proclaimed their own nicknames they wanted that recognition now the exception to this i believe uh is jack the ripper the because we uh you know i went to scotland yard and i i spent a lot of time researching this case and talking to a number of detectives there and uh uh th- spending a fair amount of time with the uh with a former uh, homicide detective who was the curator of their museum of crime the so-called black museum at scotland yard and um i became convinced and i think john along with me that the letter that um uh that gave the name jack the ripper the so-called dear boss letter um we believe was a fake we believe that uh it was written probably by one of the uh journalists at the time to gin up uh interest now the other letter that came in the one that was uh that was labeled from hell and has a much uh, sloppier uh writing and also uh uh includes part of a human kidney in uh in the mm-hmm. letter that we believe was was real. Um, but what's interesting is, unlike the others I, I mentioned, we don't believe that the man who is ultimately known as Jack the Ripper ever thought of himself that way or ever called himself Jack the Ripper, despite that dear boss letter. But but you're right. In in general, a lot of these guys do want the uh, do want the recognition, and you know think that they may not be getting. Uh, uh, the glory, if you will, that uh, some of their, uh, their peers had, had been doing. And, um, and a lot of them do look to others uh, uh, as their role models. Uh, interestingly, Joseph Paul Franklin uh, kind of looked up and really admired Charles Manson because he really believed that uh, Charles Manson wanted to start a race war, which was exactly what, uh, what he wanted to do. And what's interesting okay. is then when you get to Dylan Roof uh who uh, kills uh all of the people in the uh in the uh South Carolina um uh, uh, church um he is he's like uh goes to Paul Franklin's spiritual child. I mean, he wants to create a race war too. He didn't know these people. He didn't, he didn't have any personal animosity against them except for the fact that they were African American. And he really wasn't even concerned about being caught and put in jail and sentenced to death because he was convinced, as was Franklin, that when the race war that he helped to foment actually happened, um, You know, all of his confrères would break him out of uh, prison, and he would become a great hero.
2: Okay, you just mentioned the Franklin getting inspiration from uh, Manson, and you also bring up the interesting points that uh uh the oklahoma city bombing happened uh yeah the world trade the first world trade center uh, a, a explosion in the basement
3: yeah and, in, the, in the parking and, garage and they, yeah. yeah
2: yeah and, and then the unibomber uh there's one of the unibomber uh cases happened right at, after the oklahoma city one and it, it, uh I think you say say something like uh, uh he didn't want and, to be and excuse outdone. me Mark, but
3: also did, didn't the didn't the Oklahoma City bombing happen on one of the anniversaries of the Waco uh tragedy? Uh,
2: uh I I think it I think did. So. It, yeah. and, and then, so in other words the, the,
3: the date wasn't wasn't accidental. Yeah. Um
2: yeah, there there was uh forget! Oh, gee. Now I have to d- dig through my notes real. Someone go on a rant. Yeah, I'm, a I'm pretty through. sure about
3: that. I just don't remember which anniversary it was. It,
2: yeah, but there, yeah, there was. Uh, 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 I I was looking for the uh, that that passage uh, uh, where uh, you, know, you, you you were saying like the the Unabomber uh, a example from that uh april uh April case of ninety three or whenever it was yeah uh, it, was that a copycat or was he not wanting to be outdone uh, by the the recent examples
3: so Good question it, yeah, that, yeah, i honest i honestly don't remember that was a long time ago and i haven't looked at that case lately but okay. I, I wouldn't be surprised if you're correct
2: okay yeah, it's, um i was trying to find it here in here my notes
3: and well i'll i'll try to come back i mean that's the that other that thing one. you have to you know when when you've looked at this many cases um you know, there are a lot of them that are obviously distinct, and we, we do learn something different from each one, but there are so many details of uh, these cases that it's sometimes hard for writers like me and the detectives to keep them straight. For instance, in The Killer's Shadow, I, I kept thinking I was being confused, and it turns out that crimes in two different States, I can't even tell you the uh, at this point I can't even remember which states I think Tennessee was one of them I'm not sure the other but in any event uh, in two different cities uh, both counties had the same name, and I kept saying, "Wait a minute! So and so is the prosecutor of this county, not..." So-. And then I, and then suddenly I realized, we're talking about two different counties in two different states. They just happen to have the same name. So, you know, it it can get <laughs> it can get very uh, confusing, and you know, you have to sort of make flowcharts for yourself to keep them all straight. In fact. Our our research assistant uh, Ann Hennigan when we were doing the killer's shadow I mean she had to actually do a timeline for us of of this three-year killing spree because it was so complex and he moved so much and he used so many different um, uh, modes of killing and uh, that it it was uh, and there were so many different prosecutions that it was really hard to keep them all straight I mean which is pretty terrifying when you think about it.
2: Okay, I think i found the passage. Um, Okay. Significantly, this event occurred just five days after the deadliest incident of terrorism in American history, the horrific bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, which killed 168 people. After this bombing, apparently for the sake of his ego, the Unabomber had to get back in control. He had to show the public at the Oklahoma bombers where Johnny-come-latelys in amateurs while he was the experienced professional. Bombing was the thing that defined this otherwise insignificant nobody in the public's mind. He couldn't let anyone else steal his thunder.
3: Okay, that's great. I'm glad you found that, and, uh, and now that I know that, I certainly stand by it.
2: Okay, I it I
3: I it just took me a second. I mean that's, to... that's good sleuthing on your part, I got to say.
2: <laughs> but it it it's just really interesting that so many of these uh people you're profiling, uh, you know, we can go back to you know, like you said, you know, the Dear Boss uh yeah. letter and the you know, uh with, uh the the, the uh, one with the uh kidney uh yeah the, you know, you the from hell, hell letter oh. yeah 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 from, from hell uh yeah the unibomber is trying to uh he's a trying to get his manifesto published in
0: mm-hmm. the new right. York
2: Times It mm-hmm. uh yeah you know, penthouse magazine you know, says you know, okay, we'll you know print parts of it you know once a month uh and at least the Unabomber, uh, ted didn't you know w- want to have his you know, uh manuscript printed in porno ma- magazine and It's like second rate <laughs> play- play. so it, it it's actually pretty interesting when you just look at over 140 years of all these uh, uh serial killers and the need for uh, 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 approaching a newspaper or some kind of publication to get their name out there uh, about their demands or what they're going to do next.
3: Yeah. Well, and yeah, you're absolutely right. And somebody like Ted Kaczynski, who's extremely smart, um, one of the very few, uh, uh, serial killers uh, of of any sort who really has a genius IQ. I mean, he's very mixed up mentally, but uh, yeah, he wanted this out there and there was uh, there was a lot of discussion within the FBI and within the uh, uh, executive suites of both the uh, Washington Post and the New York Times about whether they should accede to this demand. I mean was this extortion, if you will, and in a way it was. But uh, the uh, FBI, um, and I know the people who made the decision, uh, finally came to the conclusion that, yeah, if we publish this, um, somebody may recognize it. and you know the public can be our greatest uh can be our can be our greatest partner in this and as we all know that's exactly what happened um ted's brother david uh who came from a very similar background and with a lot of the similar emotional stresses and ended up completely different uh instead of becoming a um serial bomber he becomes a social worker uh he and his wife uh recognized, gee, this sounds a lot like Ted, and um, that's how the case ultimately was uh, was cracked. Uh, and to this day, you know, I've spoken to David, and to this day, Ted won't have anything to do with him. I mean, he considers that uh, David betrayed him, uh, when in fact, David cre- um, was very courageous and, uh, and performed an amazing uh, public service.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, yeah another I- interesting a- aspect of uh
0: ted's
2: uh ted Kaczynski's mind that very intelligent
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh but y- you also uh, brought up uh misguided um it, 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 you you published his whole uh, manifesto yeah and it, it's just full of this uh, uh like hatred for uh industrialization technology it, mm-hmm. it, like uh, elites and class warfare type uh, philosophies uh yeah, he talks about, like, uh, some of those people have feelings of inferiority, who, uh, find a sample, um, the two psychological tendencies that underlie modern leftism we call feelings of inferiority and over-socialization, Yeah, just yeah, phrases. Yeah,
3: and you know, and he's he's not wrong about all of this. I mean, some of these uh, some some of these criticisms, you know, have some weight to them. But first of all, this just goes all over the place. I mean, he's just spewing at everything. And also, you don't solve these problems by sending bombs to kill people. Um, So, you know, that's where. You know the the psychopathology comes in, and the fact that uh, remember this guy who's he's railing against uh, technology and all of the uh, appurtenances of modern life, and he's living in a one room cabin in the woods of Montana by himself because he has no social skills, and uh, (laughs) you know he's uh, he's totally inadequate. I mean, I think one of the you know, it's kind of a glib way of saying it, but I think one of the most uh revealing lines of, of that whole book that we wrote was during the nineteen sixty seven Summer of Love, uh, Ted Kaczynski didn't have a single date. I mean that tells as much about him as the manifesto does.
2: Mhm. And and al- almost all the characters or or the you know, your main bad guy in all your books
0: is uh-huh.
2: such a person, really socially inadequate. The, yeah. Uh, he, he had, what, a cat skin in a girl's locker, and, and it just shows how socially immature <laughs> he was.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly, and, um, and what's also interesting uh, – A little off point, but, uh, you know, most of these guys are willing to talk at some point, uh, particularly to John, because he's got that reputation and he knows a lot about it. We've approached Kaczynski several times, and and he refuses to talk to us, or anybody else, for that matter.
2: Hmm.
3: Okay. uh,
2: Is is he that... uh, um...
3: I think he is he is very controlling and he is uh he is a total loner and he doesn't want to give up anything of himself and he's in a maximum security prison for the rest of his life he knows that and uh I don't think he wants to have anything to do with anybody who uh uh, helps put him there, and anybody in law enforcement fits, in particularly in the FBI, fits into that category. And as I say, he won't even communicate with his brother, who uh, who made a deal with the authorities that before he would turn him in, uh, he wanted to guarantee that uh, they wouldn't pursue uh, uh, the death penalty against his brother. So, um, but that didn't cut any weight with Ted. He still won't talk to David or David's wife
2: okay wait, yeah and it, you know, just to tie up a point from you know, the beginning of the show uh you know when uh it, during the last show uh you know Roger Pick Paul was uh talking a little bit about what uh went into the making of a presidential assassin
0: uh-huh.
2: and it, what Roger uh, discovered after re- reading all the doctors the, uh, reports uh, after speaking with uh, Leon Chul- um, i it, it, it was he was basically ha- had this uh, like I, I, I don't know what you call it, like a leftist type, Marxist type indoctrination. And, and it's almost like the same thing that is found in the Unabomber Manifesto.
3: Yeah, it kind of sounds like it, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. It, 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 it really, it, 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 and that was one of the things, you know, Senator, so, so uh, going went through your book and it's like oh the, you know the th- things would be so much better off if we just w- went back to like being of uh, like an agricultural s- society and you know the prehistoric people and uh, hatred for the industrial revolution you know types uh r- rants uh, it, it and you know Roger said uh, you know just keep it. You know, you know, humans really haven't changed much over a long period of time.
0: Somebody,
3: yeah, and yeah. you know, I don't know. I don't know that much about Leon Shulgash, but I suspect you know that uh, you do have some similarities with people like uh, Ted Kaczynski and uh, other you know anti um, you know industrial revolution types, whatever you want to call it, anti-establishment in that. They feel, you know, in this big industrial complex, they feel totally inadequate or, uh, you know, almost forgotten, if you will. So, you know, I think uh, again, I, I would, uh, I would stress in any kind of assassin or, you know, and you and you have to consider somebody like Kaczynski an assassin type personality too, because as you say, they do things from far away. i would um yeah i i would say that uh you know this feeling of inadequacy in in the in the big picture of society and not feeling they're getting their own due and in fact um um Garfield's assassin, as I recall, was somebody who felt, for no logical reason, that he was entitled to some big uh, political appointment, and uh, and and shot Garfield because uh, he was disappointed that he didn't get this appointment. So again, there's somebody who feels deeply inadequate and at the same time completely entitled. Mm-hmm. So so there's a theme that you know just keeps running through these guys. Yeah. It, and
2: and that's what I keep learning as you present more examples, and it's uh, it's a fasten it it just becomes a fascinating subject.
3: Well, again, there's your there's your human condition, Mark. mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's why people uh do like the crime uh true crime genre it, it, it's, it it's it's like somewhat related to what we were just discussing um in you know the killer's shadow um you know pretty much know you know right right there in the first couple pages uh who the uh bad guy is right
0: yeah, exactly.
2: That's, that's yeah. In uh, when a killer calls, uh, you don't know until t- halfway through the book. What right. is your it, approach to writing?
3: Uh, that's a very good question. Um, yeah, and it, I, th- it, like, I, I th- and I think I actually can. In those two examples, I think I can give you a very definitive answer, which is that we try to write the book. Given the knowledge that John, as the investigator, the profiler, had at the time, so in other words, when uh, in the killer calls, he didn't know who the unsub was. He didn't know much about him, and in the in the course of the investigation, he learned as much as he could. Um, In the case of uh, the killer's shadow. he he knew right away the name of uh, uh, Joseph Paul Franklin. What we didn't know is where he was, what he was planning to do next, and how many crimes he had committed. Now, it turns out he murdered like 22 people, uh, but nobody knew that at the time. So so in terms of my approach to writing it, it's what, is, what does our main character, John, know And the reader should know at the moment that he knows, and not before. So I think that's an answer to your question.
0: Okay. Yeah. It's uh,
2: um, both. Well, mainly a lot of a lot of your books are like a whodunit, an Agatha Christie type uh, book, but you know you can change up the style where, okay, you know, who the unsub is on page one. Well, how do you, it's not a mystery. No, Uh,
3: you know, I guess there's different kinds of mysteries, which the mystery is, okay, are we going to catch this guy? Why did he do it? What did he do? How are they going to prosecute him? So I guess, you know, the theme that probably runs through all of them, as you say, different books have different needs depending on uh, where they, where the starting point is but what I always try to do is sort of follow the dictum of I want the reader to always want to know what happens next you know I, to, to turn the page what happens on the next page what happens in the next scene in the book and I figure as, as long as I can have the reader wanting to know just as the detective or the profiler or the investigator wants to know what happens next how do you then I think you know the the book will have have its own narrative thrust okay
2: and it, um i just looked at the clock we we, we have like about 15 minutes uh, uh-huh. um but uh, um i think one of the one of the things i wanted to um you know, kind of and with was on 408 of Mindhunter was that uh, so what I truly believe is that along with more money and police and prisons, what we most need more of is love. Um, well
3: i I think that 's true, and you know i and and the word I would use along with love is empathy and I think one of the things that we try to do in these books is give a sense of empathy for other people for um, certainly not empathy for the killers or offenders, uh, the predators, but an understanding of why they work, but certainly an empathy for the victims and an empathy for the people who try to bring them justice. And so, um, yeah, I do believe if uh, there was um, more love and uh, less tension and uh, divisiveness in society, uh, we'd all be a lot better off.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, So I, I definitely
3: subscribe to that. Yeah
2: yeah no, no i i think a lot of people uh wouldn't be expecting uh you to uh, th- you and john to throw that out that uh as a wrap up t- to the book but there there it is and uh, um then you go on to say this is not being simplistic it's at the very heart of the issue it, it, it's uh Despite all the horrible stuff that happens, you you are uh, working in solutions to some of these problems, and even with a character like Dawn from When a Killer Calls, yeah, uh, yeah, she. It really showed uh, a lot of courage and growth as a character, where you know she's in, in her uh, uh, twenty twenty one, uh, mm-hmm. um, and she's kind of taken over, or she's picking up the phone more frequently than her mom, and it's, and she she just becomes more,
3: um, uh, mm-hmm.
2: uh, of this. Uh, family representative. Yeah, and, and to
3: this day she's uh she is um like a lay minister. She has her she has her own ministry where she sings, speaks to churches and other religious organizations uh and she's really tried to um carry on um her sister's legacy and I think she's done a very good job of it. It's very it's very hard, but uh you know she uh she is a woman of faith uh much more faith than i have i have to admit i uh i admire it i wish i had that kind of faith i um i don't but uh um you know i think she has uh um, she has let this tragedy um you know lead her lead her in very noble ways and i find with um with many of the families of murder victims that I've gotten to know very well and that John's gotten to know very well, um, they really turn their grief in many cases to very positive things in terms of trying to change laws, to protect uh, children, uh, all kinds of things. I mean, I could I could probably cite you five or 10 examples just off the top of my head, but suffice it to say, um, I'm just in total awe and admiration for these people who are able to turn their grief into something so constructive uh, and uh even um Sherry's and Don's parents uh, her her mother has has unfortunately died of cancer um several years ago but uh until that time uh both of them would uh would would counsel uh uh, the families of, of murder victims and try to help them through the ordeal and uh not only did they go to cherry's trial, which was of course uh uh very very horrendous and heartrending they were every day at uh, deborah helmick's trial as well and trying to support uh her family it
2: it, it it's really um An interesting contrast where you have um, with Bell having two murders uh, going on close together and he's starting to mentally decompensate. Sh uh dawn is actually uh, uh like dominating him in the phone, phone call like he yeah he, you're you're
3: you're right you're right um it's almost as if as he gets more vulnerable she gets stronger that's a, that's a yeah. very good uh it's a, it's a very good uh um observation i th- i think it's i think it's very true um, which also, which shows both Dawn's faith and and her determination, because um, I mean I you know having talked to her about it I I can tell you it was gut wrenching.
2: Mm-hmm. And uh, you know the uh, scene in the uh, auxiliary trailer where yeah. they get uh, Mrs.
3: Smith and Dawn. Uh, to actually confront him yeah yeah uh it's super and what's, wise. and what's interesting is uh if i can just you know add one sure. thing since we've already mentioned the name larry jean bell now who is who is in fact turns out to be the killer um when um uh when, when they're interrogating him and they interrogate him for a long time i think it just john says um you know did when without you know he doesn't even want to admit that uh he's the killer obviously uh but John uh, says to him well did you when did you start feeling badly about uh the murder and he said when i saw them in the memorial service at the cemetery so it did get to him clearly
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, with you know the koala bear
3: yeah exactly
2: sort of the, yeah, yeah. yeah so that's yeah i think uh you and john have s- something
0: w- really
2: interesting going well, on you. and and you know, w- 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 with the um well with the, the uh in, in his car at the staged memorial service, it, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, uh, readers of your Mind Hunter can also uh, learn that uh, that's actually pretty uh, a pretty normal uh, uh, behavior for the unsub. Is like a lot of times they talk, uh, uh, walk down the street and ask, uh, you know, the police officer.
3: Yeah, uh, they 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 try to insinuate themselves into the investigation. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, uh, it 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 just seems like you know these phrases like, oh, you know, guy, uh, you know, returns to the scene of the crime. Well, there's something. That's not a new, you know, John didn't just discover it. It, No, no. There's proof. Yeah, this goes like old wives' tales, but John, you know, gives you.
3: You know, and there's different reasons to return to the scene of the crime. So, in other words, the behavioral evidence that you find there can tell you a lot about him. I mean, did the person return out of a sense of guilt or uh, remorse? Sometimes you can tell from that. Uh, Sometimes um, you can see – I I remember a case that we – we did in uh, Idaho where the uh, the killer was returning to the scenes of the crimes to the body actually to the body dump sites so that he could masturbate on the uh, on the victims bodies I mean to show both his contempt for them but also his possession of them so you know you can it, 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 it it's a cliche that they return to the scene of the crime but often they do but for, for sometimes very different behavioral reasons
2: well wow. i you know, i think um this has really been a fascinating show it um you know i think uh you know I, i've only done a few of, of my questions i've <laughs> so so many more that <laughs> but um you know john does think very strongly about the uh, victim impact statements
3: yes yes and i you know in the in the few minutes we have left uh i i think i can i can say how we feel about that which is uh the criti- the critics of victim impact statements say that well it 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 makes the playing field un unlevel because the, uh, the uh, convict or the offender should just be judged on the crime, not on the people around him because each crime has a different set of victims and all of that. Um, we feel differently. We feel that when you commit a violent crime, you are creating a relationship. It's a relationship that the victim and the victim's family certainly did not want, but it's a relationship nonetheless. So where do you get off saying that the other party to this relationship has no say in the outcome? And it's as simple as that.
0: In other words,
3: in other words, if, uh, if you've done something to me because you've hurt somebody who's very close to me, um, I should be able to tell the jury or the judge or whoever is deciding on the punishment, I should be able to tell you what the impact has been. And that should be figured in to the sentence. And as I say, it's as simple as that.
2: No, no, I thought, uh, uh, that was another, um, excellent point that's brought, brought up. and, And, uh, is it, you know we we have like two minutes left i hate hate to yeah go into anything else it's like you know this is like one of those you know kind- of shows where uh you know, i'm surrounded by like five books you know it's like oh uh, uh, do not you uh, why don't you read war and peace and you know we'll, <laughs> yeah we'll talk about it next week uh, yeah' c- yeah Bar- <laughs> you, you know, just can't give me a little bit more time than you know war and peace <laughs> is not a bathroom book no it's not
3: <laughs> but yeah uh, i you know it's, uh
2: you know
3: who you know fortunately our books are a lot shorter
2: than war and peace
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but uh, yeah this is uh it been a uh, you know Ramona really appreciated uh, your information as well and I, you know, you have a, a terrific in- industry going on with all all these uh books it just gives you all these new insights into what people are doing different uh you know why why they might be taking the, uh, you know, these certain actions. It, it, it's uh, and I, I've really enjoyed the, uh, you know, f- five books or so that you know, we discussed tonight. Uh, uh, is there anything else you want to say? Before, as
3: we... No, I think you, you've you've covered it well. I think you know we we talked about why people do the things they do and and. And how other people react to it, and that's kind of the essence of the whole thing. And I, I, I think we've, uh, you know, I'm, I'm honored that you had so many other questions, but I, I, I think we've covered the waterfront here.
2: Okay. Well. Uh, all right. So, uh, I'll let you he- head to bed. And <laughs>
0: thank you. Let you <laughs> me know when the
2: next when the next book comes out. You, you're invited. You have an op- open invitation. Oh, very good. Okay,
3: and And best of luck to you, Mark, and uh, we'll talk again.
2: All right, sounds good. We'll get the archives to you tomorrow. Thanks so much, Mark, and uh, we will see everyone next week. Good night, everyone.